This is the Uncommon Christian Podcast with Michael Hinton. Well, hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Uncommon Christian Podcast with Michael. This is Michael hanging out with you for episode 39. Man, it's 39 episodes. We are taking a one-off today. And we are inviting a former guest on because he has a new book coming out. And so let without further ado, Caleb, say hi to the podcast for us. Hi, podcast. Hey, <laughs> thanks for having me on, Michael. I love your love your podcast, love what you're doing, and love you even more, bro. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Caleb Kaltenbach, who is a pastor, author, guest speaker, Kansas chief fanatic, all sorts of things that we could come up with. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's so good to have you back. We had you on earlier in uh, the launch of this podcast, and I really appreciate your friendship and your continued friendship and your continued support of, of what we're doing here, man. Yeah, we got to talk about cancel culture. That's right. We did. It's yeah. still happening. Still happening. It doesn't <laughs> go away. People are still canceling each other. Maybe can we cancel cancel culture? I think we're trying to. Um, I think we're trying to. But, you know, you got to fight fire with fire, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who, knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, Caleb, before we get into the new book you're releasing, why don't you just give us a a brief update about your life. And and one of the things I'd love for you to do is last time you were on here, we talked about how you had a really amazing up, upbringing story. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your upbringing and just kind of what led you to what you do today. Yeah, yeah. So uh, right now, currently, um, I uh, help direct the, actually, I'm the only person there, but I direct the Messy Grace Group. And basically, that's an uh the ministry through which I help churches and schools and ministries develop systems and processes that honor their doctrine and values, but also allow LGBTQ people to attend um, and get involved uh, because people find and follow Jesus better in community, not in isolation. Then I also write. Yeah, I write. And then I serve uh, as a pastor, one of the pastors at Shepherd Church in Los Angeles. Um, Porter Ranch, which is in the northwest corner of the San Fernando Valley. And um, uh, my official title is research pastor. But as I've kind of shared with you, that is kind of just a title. There are four buckets and to my job, not all of them have to do with the other. So anyway, but I love I love partnering with the church I love and being able to be there. Um, yeah. Wow. So my story, and I'm just going to tell this in a minute or less, is really unique. Uh, my parents were both university professors in Missouri, in Columbia. They divorced when I was two. Both of them went into same-sex relationships. My dad had several friends. My mom was in a 22-year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera. My dad stayed in Columbia. They moved to Kansas City, where they were activists, joined the local board of directors for GLAD. When I was growing up, they took me with them to bars, camps, clubs, pride parades, and I saw how a lot of Christians treated them, and I thought to myself, I never want to be a Christian, um, because if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus is. Mm. And I ended up joining a Bible study when I was 16 to try to disprove the Bible, and that turned out real well, obviously. And um, <laughs> yeah, 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 
Good, good plan. They get work against you. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's still working against me because I follow Jesus. Yeah. But, um, and I changed my view on sexuality to what I hold today, that God designed sexual intimacy and affection to be expressed in a marriage between a man and a woman. But I also believe that a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to devalue another human being. Mm. So, mm. uh, I had to come out as a uh, Christian to my three gay parents and they kicked me out for a while. Eventually they let me back in. I went to a college in the Mecca of Christianity, Joplin, Missouri for four years and then moved out to California back when it was cool to move out to California in 1999, (laughs) back in the day, not today, but back then. And, um, was in Texas for about three and a half years because everybody's got to live in purgatory at some point. And my parents moved there separately of one another, started attending my church, and eventually became Christians at the ages of 69 and 70. So that's kind of the background in my story from which I wrote um, Messy Grace in my upcoming book, Messy Truth. Wow, that's awesome, man. To hear that, that the journey you've been on with, with first, you know, really kind of having a, a dislike of people of faith because of how they treated um, your parents and and what you witnessed and walked through, to then you know being captured by the Holy Spirit and 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 then being set apart for for mission, right? I mean, we all are as believers, but to be called into full time ministry to to lead a church and then to have your parents who who uh, you know were gay to come say, well, actually, man this thing about Jesus is, is real. And I, I, I want to follow them. I mean, what a journey for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it, it amazes me, Michael, how much we take for granted that our words and our actions, they will either encourage people to follow Jesus or discourage them. Like I really mm. think that, and I say this in the book, um, that a large part of our integrity is not just in keeping our word. It's not just in who we are when nobody's looking a large part of our character integrity is how we treat other people. Right. And how, and I think what, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what happens, especially in the world of a Christian is we, we get the idea that we have to love everybody, but in a world that is so politically charged right now, especially in the season we're in, sometimes our political beliefs and personal feelings we allow to supersede what our faith, our, what the Bible tells us and how we should love people. Yeah. How, how do you think we, how do you, how should we encourage people to, tr- to, to, to move beyond what we maybe believe from a political standpoint or our personal feelings about something to what the Bible encourages us to do is how we treat people. I think, number one, we have to revisit where do we start. If we had nothing and everything was taken away, do we start with our politics? Do we start with our faith? Do we start with, you know, the, the talking points for our the platform of our so-called political party, or do we start with Scripture? Now, obviously, you and I would say start with Scripture, first and mm-hmm. foremost. And so— I think that there needs to be a shift in our society because there are a lot of people that look at their their worldview is formed 
primarily through their politics. So they look at their faith and interpret their faith through their politics instead of interpreting their politics through their faith. And so a lot of people have to make that switch, but it's hard for them because in our society, we have religious freedom. Now, that's a good thing. I'm a big fan of religious freedom. I'll I'll always stand up for it. But on the other hand, religious freedom has allowed apathy to creep in. It's allowed a lot of Christians to look at their faith as just another option. And it has allowed way too many people, but I, you know, in the past, I would say on the right, but now I would say on the left just as much. There's a lot of too many people to um, rely on uh, politics and, and, and policies for reform and world change just as much or more as they would Scripture and God and, and trusting Him. Um, you see a lot of that with um, you know, the moral majority and so on in the 80s and 90s and the Christian right. But you look at the new left today or the extreme progressives. I'm not even talking about the liberals or the classic liberals. I'm talking about the extreme progressives. And they're repeating the same mistakes as the moral majorities of the 80s and 90s. And the same thing will happen. And so there are a lot of people where they look at politics and policies as just as important or life changing as scripture. And and usually more so on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Carrie. I just saw somebody quote Carrie Newhoff who said, and I'm, I might just mess up the quote, but basically if your political ideas align with God, you might not be following the right God. Yeah. And uh, I, I heard that and I thought, man, that was, you know, clever, you but God, also true. God aligns with your political ideals. Right. Then right. You might because, not be following them, yeah. Right, because like you can clearly see in the scripture that there were a lot of political ideas that were being perpetuated that Jesus really just didn't have time for. Um, uh, even political ideas that were coming through religious teachers, and Jesus basically said, "This is not this is not what I'm about. This is this right. is what I'm about." And so you have that side of it, Caleb. But then on the other side, you have people who look at Jesus, and because we Christians are a representative of Jesus. A lot of people have become disenfranchised. They absolutely want nothing to do with him because all they've heard is the lifestyle that they support or they live is wrong and they're going to hell. How would you encourage people to trust Jesus even when they maybe disagree about his stance on sexuality? Well, I think, I think it begins with asking the question, do you trust Jesus at all? Um, I like what Andy Stanley says, that if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm going to go with that person. And so I think about Mm. Jesus and, um, (laughs) you know, I I think that's such a good quote. And I love um, Andy's book, Irresistible. And, you know, the the premise of that book, starting with the resurrection, a lot of, you know, there are some people think that's new to Andy. And Andy's even said this. That's really from Norman Geisler, the apologist. Where he, when he talks about <clears throat> how do you lead a new person to the Lord, Geisler teaches that you start with Jesus. You start with the resurrection. Because there, because I don't know about you, but when I, when I first believed in Scripture, I'm sorry, when I first got saved, I didn't believe that all of Scripture was inspired automatically. I didn't know a ton about the Trinity. I didn't know a ton about a lot of stuff. 
here's what I did know yeah. that I, I believe that Jesus resurrected and that he saved my life, you know, eternally, yeah. you know, through Absolutely. his payment on the cross and, and resurrection. So I think we've got to go with that starting point. You know, we have to ask ourselves, number one, do we just trust Jesus? And if we do, then I think we have to kind of build from there and we have to look at what Jesus said about certain issues. And that's that's where a lot of people say, well, Jesus never said anything about same-sex relationships or, you know, for lack of a better word, homosexuality or whatever you want to say. And uh, that's where I would say, yeah, he said plenty. He said, oh, he said a lot. Yeah, he said a lot. And especially in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, where he's at the first he's asked about marriage and divorce. And, you know, he quotes Genesis 127 and 224. He's like, we're not even going to deal with your modern day rabbinical, you know, commentary. We're going to go back to what God said in the beginning, you know, exactly. And he affirms this male female model. When you look at scripture, it begins in a marriage and ends in a marriage. And he affirms that. And then also, when I look at what he says in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, I got to think to myself, you know, Jesus has a pretty narrow view of divorce, like so narrow. Yeah, he does. Even I read it now. I'm like, ah, can we get a PR guy? to? <laughs> can we get somebody to wordsmith this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jesus, you, you need to read Win Friends and Influence People. You need to read that book. Okay? <laughs> number one. Okay. But, I mean, you look at it, and he has a really narrow view of divorce. So why is he going to have an open view of marriage? Um, right. Absolutely. He said that uh, plenty. And and when it, when it comes down to, I think, you know, is our life is a series of events where we are consistently surrendering of ourselves to, to God. Um, and so I really, really think that um, as we grow closer with Christ, uh, we have to let go of our own opinions. Um, but that's process. Yeah. That's sanctification. Yeah, right. And sanctification, for those that might be listening, is a process by which every single day in Christ we are becoming more and more like Jesus through uh, our spiritual disciplines, through our behaviors, that by the time we get to heaven, we will have uh, fully become the perfect self that God uh, has intended to create in us. And so when Caleb uses that word sanctification, that's what that simply means. Nothing, not a word to be afraid of. No. So, Caleb, okay, so don't be afraid. So you wrote the first book, which was Messy Grace, and that book was to help Christians basically to extend that love to neighbors, to uh, all people, including those who may identify as LGBTQT. Now, Messy Truth, why why is this book so important, not just for Christian organizations like nonprofit and churches, but for the common Christian? Yeah. So that's a great question. So my first book, Messy Grace, had all to do with a Christian's personal relationship with LGBTQ friends and family. Messy truth is how do you ask the question and discusses how do you get LGBTQ friends and family involved in a Christ-centered redemptive community? And mm. Uh, that that ha- that is that has a lot to do with personal individuals uh, more so than um, I guess organizations. It does have to do with churches and organizations. But I have a ebook, messy leadership. I'm almost done with. I'm gonna 
put out and that's going to be a lot more technical and that kind of thing. But this book, I think, is really written with the everyday Christian in in mind. So like um, about a third of the book is devoted to how do you have a difficult conversation without destroying people, without shaming people? Mm. Um, How do you measure your character to see if you have the credibility to walk with somebody when they're struggling? Um, You know, how how can you become more empathetic? because I okay. think God is the ultimate example of empathy. So, and, and then how do you lead other people around you to become more empathetic? Um, what does it look like mm-hmm. to create an environment where your friends are, where their identity in Christ is not in competition with their sexuality? Um, yeah. And so th- this hey, I wanna, book really answers a lot of that or I mean, deals with it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I want to I want to jump back to something you said about empathy. Okay. Uh, you write a lot about empathy in Messy Truth in this second book. Why Why? Why is empathy so important when discussing sexuality? Because empathy, as Brene Brown says, um, is feeling with another person. Or as Reggie Joyner says, empathy is the ability <clears throat> excuse me, to put your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. So mm. I like to say it this yeah. way. Empathy is acknowledging somebody's reality. It is not rejecting them as a person. It is not agreeing with all their personal decisions or views or political opinions. Praise God. It is not that. Mm. It is merely accepting them as a person. And uh, I think I said this last time when I was on <clears throat> your show, and I'll say it again, but I think that it's not walking a mile in somebody's shoes. It's walking miles next to them because you can't. Yes. I remember that. Love that quote. Yeah. Because we can't always know what another person is going through. Even if we've had similar experiences, we're still different people with different outlook on life and everything like that. But we can walk next to people. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what empathy is. And I look at God, he's the most sympathetic being ever. His name, you know, his Christmas name, Emmanuel, means God with us, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. And then Jesus was with us, and Jesus had a human experience. Jesus felt with us. Uh, even though Jesus was innocent, he died for us, gave us the Holy Spirit to be with us, and is coming back for us. So I really see God as very empathetic. Somebody who pursued us even before we liked him, but he didn't agree with how we betrayed him. So I I really, really think that um, when we are empathetic, and again, empathetic is not being a pushover, but empathetic is acknowledging that person's reality or how they see reality. doesn't even mean you're justifying it. It means you're acknowledging it. Right. Right. And I, yeah, and I think too, just... Like we have to clear up this idea that, oh, well, empathy means I have to I have to be okay. I have to I have to accept it. I have to agree with it. No, no, no. That's not empathy. Empathy is literally I I saw an analogy once I thought was so good was, you know, somebody's in a hole. Right. Sympathy is looking at that person down the hole saying, oh, that's so sad. They're in a hole. Right. That's sympathy. Empathy gets a ladder and gets down in the hole with them to say, Hey, I don't necessarily know what you're going through. I don't necessarily understand it. And I also obviously don't agree with it, but I'm with you. 
I'm going to walk with you in this. I'm going to try to see this through your lens and your eyes. Um, and I'm going to be there for you. Yeah. Now, one of the things I've loved about you, Caleb, is that you've said this since the day I've met you is that, you know, your, our empathy doesn't have to supersede our conviction that our conviction is our conviction and we can still love people the same. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to, I want to get to, I want to talk about the conviction a little bit and then transition to the relational aspect of this. So, and a lot of the, a lot of the time and the discussions around the Bible and LGBTQT, many people use the argument that the passages in the Bible that refer to such is either outdated or incorrectly interpreted. Can you just maybe shed some light on what you believe or uh, as far as where the Bible stands on this issue? <clears throat> Absolutely, man. I, unfortunately, you do have a lot of people who are saying, well, the Bible's up outdated or, you know, the Bible's view of relationships are a bunch of social constructs. That's another mm -hmm. thing we see some people doing. I mean, I think yep. social constructs exist. You and I would agree with that. But there are a lot of people, again, where, and, and you can see this in some of their theological and political views where they see social, you know, like changing social constructs as just as important as anything else. And primarily that happens through politics and policies change. Right. And so unfortunately that's been elevated to that level. But um, what we see in scripture, like I already talked about Jesus and his view of marriage and you see scripture, you know, opening in a marriage and ending in a marriage, you know, and you see scripture, uh, the male female relationship just kind of uh, weave itself through from Genesis all the way through revelation, even the most messed yeah. up relationships were male female. Um, you don't see God ever affirming like a relationship, like a same-sex marriage or, or something like that. Uh, there's not, doesn't have its basis in the male-female foundation or whatever. Um, even with Jesus, when he talks about the word sexual immorality, when he uses that word, porneo, um, yeah. throughout the Gospels, um, the first century Jewish person who heard him say that word would automatically think back to the Le Levitical passages on sex. Right. Because that's right. what he was talking about, that he didn't need to quote all these Levitical passages. Now, he quoted uh, a verse from Leviticus 19 that many people are familiar with, love your neighbor as yourself. But, yes, he did. Um, when it came to the sexual morality, he didn't need to go into depth. I, th I think even back then he was like, oh, this is still a little creepy, you know. Well, yeah, not the scriptures creepy. You get what I mean. But he's like, I'm not going to go through and quote all the all these right here. I'm like. Stay away from your aunt and shrimp. Um, but <laughs> you look at you look at what he did there, and I mean, over and over again, he affirms that. You look at the Apostle Paul. Some people try to discredit Romans chapter one, and they try to say, "Well, you know, um, those were temple prostitutes." And historically mm. speaking, were they? Yeah, there's some that Paul was talking about, and there is a sense in which. Someone is referring to is in temple prostitution, but you know what? He's also referring to um, the sin of same-sex intimacy and opposite-sex intimacy without marriage in general. I mean, just look at verses 28 through 32. He's really specific in verses 18 through like 31, and then you get to, sorry, 18 through 27, 
And then you get 28 through 32, and he lists every sin underneath the sun. Yeah. And he's very, very general. And he goes from being specific to being more general. And in with that, it, he is not just talking about specific, um, uh, specific type of individual. He's talking about everybody who falls short of the glory of God. That's what he gets right. to in Romans chapter three, and we miss that. And we try to say, well, you know, he's just talking about temple prostitution. Paul had. I've, I've heard. I've heard people say this. I've heard well-known pastors say this, Michael, that Paul and Jesus had no concept of monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships like what we have today. And I'm like, am I the only one that's a crack smoker? Like, (laughs) seriously? Of course he did. Like, we're talking about Paul. We're talking about the guy that could go toe-to-toe with the Athenian philosophers, you know, in the morning and then the Sanhedrin in the afternoon and still have enough of his personality left for dinner. We're talking about the guy who wanted to go to Spain. We're talking about that guy. We're talking about the guy that was a Roman citizen who understood Greek culture, who was part of the Sanhedrin. And people are going to tell me, well, he had no concept. Yes, he did. Yes, yeah. he did. He he chose not to bring it up for whatever reason. You know what? You look at the gospel. You look in the New Testament in the first century. Look at how much Roman politics is not mentioned. Is right. not right. Up. Absolutely. But they right. they absolutely know about it. I mean, there's yeah. datings, there's there's writings, secular writings of Roman poets and playwrights who talk about monogamous same-sex relationships in the first century. N.T. Wright even quotes Plato, you know, saying yeah. that it, it absolutely was around. And, and so it, it's amazing. We try to do whatever we can to try to make the Bible palatable, to, to say what we wanted to say, to justify us kind of having a little say in what happens. I think right. is what it comes down to. And right. people who try to shift the meaning of scripture on sexuality, they're not the only ones to do this, Michael. You and I do this too. Yeah. We just do it in different yeah. areas. Right. That's that's true. That's very true. I mean, and you can you can go back to the Old Testament to see examples of monogamous same-sex marriages. I mean, you go back to 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 Sodom and Gomorrah and what's happening there. And uh, there are many other examples of that. Now, one of the questions as it relates to, to same-sex uh, relationships that I get all the time from, from both people who are trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and what if I feel this way and other people who think that it, that who disagree with the lifestyle. And one of the questions I get all the time, Caleb, is, well, you know, they somebody came out to me that they, you know, they they're same sex attracted. I don't want them to go to hell. How do I help them? And the first thing I have to say to them is, well, first of all, it's not a sin to be same sex attracted. Right. One hundred percent agree with you because there's shed some light to that to for us. There, there's some people that think that it is, um, and I won't get into. Uh, naming those people because we would probably know some of those people. A couple of those people are authors, and I get where they're coming from. Um, you know, and they they look at the attraction and the orientation as a sin because they look at every aspect of their being as sinful, um, and so it, it's thus in need of <clears throat> redemption. And even though it hasn't been taken away, that God is in the process of. Uh, 
redeeming it or uh, what we how you just described sanctification, the daily God's daily work in our lives to make us more like Christ, um, that they would see that, but they would still see it as inherently sinful. So in that sense, I can understand the logic of saying that same-sex attraction is a sin, and I can understand the logic of saying that, well, then opposite-sex attraction is going to be a sin as well. Um, here's my thing, though. I think there's a big difference between sin nature and personal sin, mm. personal sin decisions. Okay, explain that. Okay, so sin nature, that that's just, we can't help it. That's who we are. We naturally sin, mm-hmm. you know, because of the fall of humanity, um, because we betrayed God, you know, humanity did. We naturally um, sin. It is in our nature to think about ourselves. It is in our nature to give into a gravitational pull to make myself happy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we see this even in, in society today. Society is so concerned that, certain segments are happy and you can't mess with the happiness of some people um, as society interprets happiness. And so, right. You know, you look at personal sin. Those are, those are personal decisions though. You know, right. Um, If I made the personal decision to go to a Nickelback concert, that would be sinful. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you had to pause there and think about that. You're like, where's he going with that? I was like, wait, wait, yeah, where's he going what, with what's this? Happening? What's happening? No, but like if we made a personal decision to um, embezzle money from our company, that's a big example. Right. If we made a personal decision to lie to our parents, if we made the personal decision to, um, you know, disobey what our manager told us not to do or not to fulfill that intentionally, um, and I don't need to give all these examples, but that's personal sin. Um, there's there's a difference between us making the decision and then our sin nature. Yes, we 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 struggle with the decision whether to do the right thing or the wrong thing because of our sin nature and our redeemed nature, which uh, you know gift which is given to us by God. But uh, there's still a difference between um, personal sin and sin nature, and so that's why I say I don't think that orientation that attraction is a sin until you start acting it out in your head, you know, and and absolutely that goes for opposite sex attraction or same sex attraction. Absolutely. Like, and that's, that's usually where I take that conversation is it, it, it is, it is no different than a heterosexual person who sees the opposite sex and has an attraction to them where it becomes dangerous grounds or, or sinful grounds is when if I see a female and I start to imagine what it would be like to be with that female sexually in my head and in my heart, well, I've lusted. And according to scripture, I've committed sin, right? Right. Then if I take that lust and turn it into action, then I've committed adultery, right? Outside of marriage, I've done that. In the same sense, someone who is same-sex attracted, if they see the same sex and they feel an attraction towards it, but they don't allow that attraction to then become lust, and they don't allow that lust to then become action, they've not committed any sin. Um, right. You know, right. and I tell people all the time, we can't help. We cannot help. I truly believe this. We cannot help who we are attracted to. Our chemical makeup and our bodies determine that for us, right? 
um, and whether or not you want to trace trace that back to the fall of man or whatever you want to do there, we can't help it. But what we can help is our actions from that, right? We right. can help what we think about that. We can help how we can help what we do about that. And so to call a attraction a sin, then you would have to call even heterosexual attraction a sin as well. And we we know we don't want to get to that line because then it it almost makes it really hard to even be human then. Yeah. And so I think it's I think it's hard for us to say, okay, if you're if you're attracted to the same sex, you're sinning. No, no, no. I say if you're attracted to the same sex, but you're abstaining from what Jesus clearly defines as lust or clearly defines as adultery, then you are not sinning. I have a good friend who who I met who is a believer, he's a pastor, and he's same-sex attracted. And he lives his life, I mean, just as any of us, and I'm sure he struggles with this as well, but he lives his life according to Scripture. And I would say that that man is a man of God, he's a great guy, and he is doing his best to curtail his attraction, just as I'm doing my best to curtail my attraction to only my wife, right? Right. We are no different. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And there's a big difference. And, and kudos to your friend. And those those are people that I really admire. And I really mean that. I really mean that. Those those are the heroes, um, you know, that I see. And you and I both have a lot of uh, different friends who have made the decision to be celibate. And being being gay and celibate is not the same as being straight and single. And right. because you're straight and single there's always a chance that something could open up. You know, there's always a chance that you could meet somebody. Um, now there are straight celibate people, people that have chosen to, I had a professor at Dallas seminary who's still there who has chosen to be single for the rest of his life. That's just a decision. He felt like God led him to, um, he's never been married. Doesn't want to get married. He's a great professor, but I, I admire that. That's what he feels God called him to do. Then do that. Um, but people who are cel- gay and celibate, um, number one, these people are a lot of them. The majority are, are so close to God, closer than a lot of straight pastors. I know, you know, <laughs> honestly, because you have to be because there's a, a dependence on God that that comes with that, because um from my conversations with my gay and celibate friends and even my friends who chose not to be celibate, um, the biggest fear is not a lack of sex. I mean, it stinks, but a lack of sex never killed anybody. Now, sex has killed plenty of people, but a lack of sex has not. Um, their biggest fear is loneliness. Mm. That's the biggest fear. Not growing old with somebody, not sitting across the table from somebody that you're growing old with and holding their hand when you're both 75, drinking coffee somewhere, going on the Michael Hinton vacation around the nation. (laughs) They don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but that's, but that's my thing to me. And, and that's where the church has got to come in, Michael. That's why, you know, Community is so vital to what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why I tell churches and Christians never ever call somebody to celibacy unless you're help, willing to help them carry that difficult burden. Yeah, absolutely.
Well, Caleb, do you see, and you talk about this in your book, do you see any middle ground when it comes to faith and sexuality? What what might that look like? And 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 how is middle ground not a compromise? Yeah. We're you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I say this in Messy Grace that love is the tension that we feel between grace and truth. John 1, mm-hmm. 14, 17 says that Jesus can't pull up both grace and truth. And you see that over and over again through the book of John. Um, you see that when he talks to Nicodemus, he starts with um, truth and ends with grace. The woman at the well in the next chapter, he starts with grace, ends with truth. The woman caught in adultery, and the list could go on and on and on. Um, you see, Even in John 3, 16 and 17, you see grace and truth. And so for him, there's no tension. For us, there's a lot of tension. But it takes no effort on our parts to either go to the grace side or to the truth side. Um, it's yeah. spiritual laziness because we are naturally either all about the rules or all about, you know, people. We're all about conviction or compassion. Um, and so it takes all the dependence on God to stretch over to grace if you're more about truth or truth if you're more about grace. And so yeah. there is middle ground. That middle ground is love. That middle ground is ten- is the tension of, of grace and truth. And so we have that. That's why the first book is messy grace. Second book is messy truth. We have to learn how to live in that tension um, because that tension is where we are in our, I think our, our deepest and most sacrificial relationships. Um, yeah. That tension is where we can be a bridge um, between we can be a bridge that just destroys false dichotomies because our society, as you well know, is just run by false dichotomies. And when we look at this conversation that we're having, there is a false dichotomy there. When we serve as a bridge between the two, we're going to get walked on. But at the same time, there are people that are able to cross over and realize they don't have to be an extremist to have an opinion. They don't have to be an absolutist in their view of sexuality. Um, right. And that's difficult because there are two types of people when it comes to the conversation that we're having. Um, when it comes to LGBTQ, people who uh, self-identify as sexual minorities, um, the, all the letters in the acronym LGBTQ, there are people who relate to LGBTQ and people who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, people who relate, to, ident- uh, who relate to LGBTQ, they might be people who are um, gay but celibate, um, they might be confused or you know what? They could even be in a same sex marriage or a same sex relationship, but they don't view that relationship as the lens through which they interpret life. These are individuals that I think are the majority of LGBTQ individuals who it is easier to talk with them about life because you're not going to step on a whole bunch of toes. However, there are people who identify as LGBTQ and that is their entire entire like worldview these are the yeah if, if you disagree with them the relationship's over yeah if you disagree yeah. with them you're being harmful why because it's their identity but when we place our identity in christ and our identity is primarily in him we don't have to try to protect it or fight for it he protects our identity for us it's secure in him yeah yeah absolutely man that's good that's so good. Well, Caleb, this book I think is 
it's coming at a super important time, especially uh, with a lot of the conversations that's happening in, you know, uh, the the news and political spectrum of our country. So I appreciate you answering uh, God's calling to to dive back into this with messy truth. Why don't you let us know where we can get the book? Yeah, if uh, you, books are sold anywhere where books are sold and Amazon, Lifeway, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Target, Walmart. Um, if you go to calebcaltenbach.com and uh, forward slash messy dash truth, or you just scroll down to resources, you'll see messy truth there. I have a whole bunch of links of where you can order it. Uh, Audible, audiobook, ebook, paperback, Kindle, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can find out more about it at calebcaltenbach.com or messygracegroup.org. Awesome. And if, and, if, and and you listening out there, I'll tell you this. Uh, if you have not met, read Messy Grace, I would absolutely get that book as well, too, because I really feel like Messy Grace is a great uh, setup for Messy Truth. Uh, we have to understand uh, grace first, which can get very messy, mm-hmm. which leads us into Messy Truth. And it's not that truth is bad. It's just that it can just be messy sometimes. And that's okay because we serve a God who walks through all that with us. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so excited about your new book, so excited about what you're doing at uh, Shepherd of the Hills and and just what you're doing for the the global national church uh, uh, around the country and around the world as well. Your voice is so needed and so important to not just Christian organizations, but also the common Christian. So thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, man, for having me. Love you, bro. Yes, sir. Also want to thank you for listening today. And if this was helpful for you, would you do me a favor, a big favor and share this with others? Also, I'd love it if you would provide a positive rate and review on Apple Podcasts, which will help this show reach more people. And that's what it's all about. Not fame or popularity. This podcast is all about encouraging and inspiring every Christian to love Jesus and to live out their purpose in uncommon ways. Thanks for joining and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Uncommon Christian Podcast with Michael Hinton. For more information on today's topic, visit UncommonChristianPodcast.com.